following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You're on an airplane, uh, relaxed, eating pretzels, cruising altitude 30,000 feet above the ground. Everything's going fine. And then The captain comes on the speaker and says, folks, we have a big problem. One of our wings is about to break off. Now, everyone gasps. People start freaking out. But here's the question. Here's my question for you if you're on that airplane. Which wing, the left or the right, would you want to break off? It's a silly question, of course. It doesn't really matter if it's the left or the right. If you're missing a wing, you are going down. You can't lose either and live. This morning, we're going to be looking at a Bible passage in which two wings are necessary in order for this church and for you as an individual to make it to your heavenly destination. If one breaks off, the whole thing is going down. Stay tuned for what those two wings are. For now, please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and he's awaiting his fate under Caesar. He's, he's, being, he's been persecuted for his fate. He's imprisoned uh, for his faith. He's imprisoned for his faith, and he's awaiting the verdict. The year is roughly A.D. 62, and he's writing to a church that he helped start about 10 years earlier in northern Greece, uh, in the city of Philippi. And he's calling them As we've already seen in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, he's calling them to stand firm and stand together and stay unified even amid suffering. And as we saw last week, he's shown them that the secret to doing this, the secret to standing together and being unified is to pursue and cultivate humility. And the secret to humility is to stare, to stare at the self-giving, self-emptying love of Jesus Christ. Here's what I think is the main idea in our passage this morning, Philippians 2 verses 12 to 18. Here's what I think is the main idea, which is my attempt to encapsulate the main idea of the, of the passage. Work out your salvation with cheerful hope, for a mighty God is at work within you. Work out your salvation with cheerful hope, for a mighty God is at work within you. We're going to think about this main idea 
in three points as we work our way through this passage. Point number one, work out. Point two, stand out. And point three, poured out. First of all, work out. We'll see that in verses 12 and 13. Second, stand out. That's verses 14 through the middle of 16. And then finally, poured out. Middle of 16 through verse 18. Work out, stand out, poured out. First of all, work out. Look there at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, this this word shows up. We thought about it last week. This word, therefore, which should direct our attention to the preceding verses. And I think the connection here is with the word obeyed. So look back at verse 8. Christ was obedient to the point of death. And then here in verse 12, therefore, as you have always obeyed. So you see that connection? Christ was obedient. Now you, as you have always obeyed, Jesus was obedient to his father and his people should be too. But that's, that's pretty straightforward. I think though that there's another level to the connection between these two passages, last week's and this week's. How did the previous one end? Remember that exalted, triumphant note on which it ended, verses 9 to 11? Paul was declaring that on the last day, everybody is going to bow before the exalted king of the universe, Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, the question is not whether you will bow to King Jesus. The question is when. The the, the question facing you this morning is, will you bow to him now as savior or later as judge? But bow you will. And that sobering prospect is why I think Paul here in verse 12 uses this language of fear and trembling. Before we look at what it means to work out our salvation, let's not miss the manner in which we are to do so. We are to work it out in a certain way with fear and trembling as those conscious, aware that the day is coming soon when they, everybody, we will recognize, publicly recognize the lordship of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, live in light of that day. And if you understand the stakes, you will conduct yourself with a measure of reverence and awe before the living God. You will work out your salvation, not flippantly, not half-heartedly, but with fear and trembling. In other words, Paul after he, he moves from, from saying, live in light of that day, he adds this phrase there. I read it earlier. And do so not only in my presence, but do this. Work out your salvation much more in my absence. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He's basically saying, hey, you should be even more vigilant about obeying Christ when an apostle isn't looking over your shoulder than when I am. I mean, the application here for us is, not complicated. I mean, this is kind of low-hanging applicational fruit. Are you a different person when you're around serious Christians or certain Christians than you are in other contexts? Or 
In other words, are, are, are you a different person when those types of people, serious Christians or certain Christians, aren't looking? How do you conduct yourself when non-believers are around? How do you conduct yourself when you're with those you live with, those you're kind of most comfortable around? Roommates, family members. Oh, friends, don't, don't let your guard down because you see it's there in those contexts where you're going to feel most kind of relaxed and carefree or at least you're just not going to be trying to impress those around you. It's there that the real you shows up. It's there that the real you is on display. And the question that we all need to think about, myself included, is how different is that version of you than the one that turns up at church? It's been well said and rightly said that who you are in private is who you are indeed. Now, how should we understand this rather tricky phrase in verse 12, work out your salvation? Work out your salvation. Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that like most New Testament commands, this one is plural. Literally, Paul is saying, continue to work out y'all's salvation, corporately, together, as a body, which means you cannot obey Philippians 2.12 by yourself. If you claim to be a Christian but don't meaningfully belong to a local church, then you may be trying to work out your salvation alone, but I can tell you that you're actually spinning your wheels because that's not God's intent. God's intent, his wise and good design is that every Christian would be essentially a teammate, and that no Christian would be a free agent. You need to fold your life into a community that is bigger than yourself. And I don't just mean a community in general. Listen, I am favorable toward fellowship in general, Christian community in general. Bible studies are great. Home groups are great. Campus ministries are great. Seminaries are fine. But you don't have to limit. You ought not limit your Christian community to those kind of extracurricular things. No, the, the, the Bible's vision for your life is that the local church would be front and center and that that would be the gravitational center around which everything else orbits. So for some of you, what this means in terms of the way you need to apply Philippians 2.12 is that you need to apply it by first putting yourself in a position to obey it, namely by joining a church, a gospel-preaching, healthy church around which you can order and organize your life. The other key thing to notice here is, is what Paul does not say. This is a, a good way to read your Bible, actually, is to, is to be aware of what the author is not saying as a way to better understand what he is saying. And Paul does not say, work for your salvation. He does not say, work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. And you can't work out something that hasn't already been worked in. You don't go to the gym to get muscles medically inserted into your body, you, you go there to develop and work out what's hopefully already inside. And this isn't just some kind of 
interesting nuance, you know, to fill up time in a sermon. This isn't a minor distinction. <laughs> I mean, to confuse these two things, to confuse working for salvation with working out salvation is to confuse Christianity with all other counterfeits. Working for is legalism. Working it out is the Christian life. And the distance between the two, hear me clearly, the difference between working out your salvation and working for your salvation is the distance between heaven and hell. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? Well, well it's, it's yet another summons here in this letter to pursue godliness, to exercise the muscle of faith, to, in the words of Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves. Remember, live as a kingdom citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See, this is why you don't get whisked away to heaven the moment that you put your trust in Jesus. God has work for you to do. Salvation is not the finish line, it's the starting line. And the Lord has a whole race, a whole marathon for you to run, and it's a race that requires effort. We believe, we cherish, we proclaim a gospel of free grace, and yet that, rightly understood, in no way contradicts the need for those who have been saved by that grace to exert themselves and strive to please the Lord who rescued them. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, comma. All right, there's not a period there. There's a comma because it's connected to what comes now. Verse 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The word for at the beginning of verse 13 is a grounding word. It means because. The, the reason we can work out our salvation is because you're not left to yourself. You can work it out because the, the omnipotent power of God is simultaneously inside of you, inhabiting you, indwelling you, and empowering you from within. And he works in us, Paul says, even on the level of our willing and our doing. He doesn't just kind of pour out strength from above, like from some kind of heavenly pitcher. No, he, he moves in and takes up residence in our souls and begins to work renovation from within. I mean, we here are peering into a mystery that shows up over and over again in the pages of the Bible, and it's the mystery, the, the tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. And rightly understood, these things are in tension, but they don't finally resolve in contradiction. They, they harmonize with one another. But sometimes we got to put on our thinking caps to figure out what that means, how that works. God's word is filled with passages that accent one or the other, divine sovereignty or human responsibility, but never in ways that finally clash. In, a, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is one of the classic statements in the Bible on how these two realities interlock and reinforce one another. I'm reminded of a little phrase in Isaiah 26, 12. Um, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, a passing thing that the prophet Isaiah says, but it's very similar to what we hear 
in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Isaiah 26, 12, the prophet says, Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Isn't that interesting? All that we have accomplished, not all that you have accomplished, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. We see the same thing in Hebrews 13. I sometimes say this as our benediction at the end of the service. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 20, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, and here's the request, here's the prayer, may he, may God equip you with everything good for doing his will. May God equip you for everything good, with everything good for doing his will. What does that sound like? That sounds like Philippians 2.12. Do his will. But then the author says, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Hear that? He's praying that God would work, God himself would work in the church what is being demanded of them. May God do it. How do we hold? As, as, we, as we think about these two things and how, they, and how they merge in the pages of the Bible, let's just think for a couple more minutes about how we hold these things together. In tension, yes, but embracing the tension, living in the tension. I think I've maybe said this before from this pulpit. Uh, I don't really have time to unpack it, but I'll just drop it here and say that most heresies, we think, are efforts to complicate the simple, but actually heresy is an effort to simplify what's complicated. And this is a great example. We come in the Bible to complicated things, tensions that are hard to resolve, and the, the, the move of heresy over the last 2,000 years has been to say, well, these things really can't fit together, so I'm just going to believe one. But no, heresy isn't taking what's simple and making it complex. It's taking what's complex and saying, I need to make that simple so I can get my head around it. How do we hold divine sovereignty and human responsibility together? Well, there's a lot that could be said, but at the least, we hold them together by avoiding two particular ditches. By avoiding two particular ditches. The first ditch, and if you have this tattooed on yourself somewhere, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. The first ditch is to just let go and let God. Now, it's a phrase Christians sometimes use with good intentions. There is an element of truth to it, but the way that it's popularly understood means that there's, it implies that there's, there's really, after all, not that much effort that needs to be required, not that much striving that needs to happen in a Christian's life. You, you just can, should kind of just sit back, relax, and trust God to take care of things. But what's interesting is that when Paul thinks of Christian experience, what comes to his mind is not sunsets and naps. What comes to his mind is 2 Timothy 2, the image of a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, 1 Corinthians 9, what comes to his mind when he thinks about the Christian life is a running track and a boxing ring. Now, if 
let go and let God, we're just referring to the moment of justification where we put our faith in Jesus and he declares us, and God declares, pronounces us in the courtroom of heaven to be righteous in his holy sight, which is not a process, it's an event. If let go and let God were referring to justification, it wouldn't be so bad. We, we put our faith in Christ and it happens. We're made right before God. But it gets problematic when it's used to refer to, which is how it's used, to refer to what's called the process of sanctification, where we are growing in grace. Because that journey of growing in grace is anything but passive and what we see here in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 is this, is this beautiful tension, this, this dynamic of what you could call dependent work. Dependent work, or as the Puritans talked about it, they called it holy sweat. Holy sweat. Or as J.I. Packer, who is kind of a modern day Puritan, I didn't, uh, has written on the Puritans, uh, he once put it, the Christian's motto should not be let go and let God, but trust God and get going. The other danger, though, the other ditch, if you're not going to let go and let God, is to try to kind of white knuckle your way forward in the Christian life. And the reason that's a ditch, the reason that's a danger is because you're not going to really get anywhere good. <laughs> You, you, you can't go anywhere without God's empowering grace. We don't often think about grace, I don't think, as a power. I think we, we love to think about grace as pardon. Uh, we love to think about grace as pardon, but grace is also power. Grace is power to live differently because the Holy Spirit is working revival, renovation, energy from within for your good and for his glory. See, so many of us, I think, are tempted to think of grace as a kind of hall pass that enables us to get away with some stuff, right? It, enab it enables us to, to sin and get away with it because after all, hasn't God already forgiven us? But if that's your mentality, then you haven't yet, even for the first time, rightly understood biblical grace, Grace is the opposite. Hear me now. Grace is the opposite of permission to sin. Grace is not permission to sin. Grace is power not to. Remember the airplane illustration. Jerry Bridges uses that to talk about two necessary wings of what he calls discipline and dependence. Those are the two wings. Discipline and and dependence. And according to Philippians 2, you can't have one without the other. If you're disciplined but not dependent on God, or you're dependent but not disciplined, the plane of your Christian life is going to start to wobble and nosedive until you correct that imbalance. And this is why, by the way, it's never good to, to cherry pick Bible verses, to rip them out of context. I call them nifty lifties. You just bring them, you just bring them right out of the Bible. Because when you do that, you get all kinds of wacky theology in practice. I mean, just imagine verse 12 without verse 13. If you, we only had verse 12, it'd be like, well, God is nowhere to be seen. It's all up to you. And if we only had verse 13, it would be God's doing it all and you're redundant. But if we don't have both wings, if we don't remember that it is, there is discipline and dependence together, 
your Christian life will start to wobble and the plane will go down. The examples of how this looks in practice are basically endless. This would be a great thing for you to talk about over a meal or coffee with someone else in the church this coming week. But just think about a few examples of how this this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility shows up in everyday life. Just take Bible reading, for example. You ask God for understanding, and then you do the hard work of reading and understanding. Or evangelism. You ask God for courage. And then you take a deep breath and open your mouth. Or even in temptation. You ask God. You pray. You plead. God, make me desire you. Make me want you. Make me long for you more than blank sin. But you also flee it. Bible never says to manage temptation. It does tell us to flee it. Beloved, God is in control. He's in control, but we misunderstand his sovereignty if we think that he wants us to lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. That is not the way he works. Or as the African Bishop Augustine put it so many years ago, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. That's very carefully put, so I'll say it again. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. Work out. Number two, stand out. Stand out. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Paul is making eye contact with the Philippians and with us and saying, beware of this. Beware of becoming a church of complainers, people who are just incessantly unhappy, hard to please, quick to moan and bicker. I can say by God's grace, a year in, I don't think that describes our church. But I know from talking to so many of you that it does describe previous church experiences. And what I hope that we feel from these verses is that we are not immune to this danger. Just because this doesn't describe us yet doesn't mean it could never come to describe us at all. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. And here's the reason Paul gives. So that you may become blameless and pure. Remember we saw that phrase in chapter 1 verse 10 where Paul prayed that the Philippians would know how to discern what's best and would be kept blameless and pure for the day of Christ. Paul says, so that you would be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Now, this little phrase here, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, is not original to Paul. He's, he's pulling that actually from the Old Testament. This is an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 32. So in Deuteronomy 32, Moses is about to die. He's charging Joshua as his successor to lead God's people, the Israelites, into the promised land. And he's warning them not to succumb to the same kind of grumbling and whining that marked the wilderness generation and that led to a lot of corpses in the desert. 
Deuteronomy 32.5, here's what Moses says in regard to God's faithless people. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, don't be like that. Don't be like unfaithful Israel in the wilderness. Rather, live as cheerful, cheerful, content children of God. See, grumbling, let's just let's be honest about grumbling. It, it, grumbling definitely can be categorized as a respectable sin. I mean, it's on that list, that short list of respectable, tolerable sins. We, we tolerate them. We, we kind of view them as tame. Maybe a, maybe a grumbler, is, is, we, we view it as a minor blemish on an otherwise pretty good personality. But according to the Word of God, grumbling is insidious. Grumbling is insidious to the heart of a Christian and to the life of a church. It has a corrosive effect. Grumbling is the black mold in a congregation. You don't notice it until it's too late, until everyone is already sick. This weekend, as I said, is the one-year anniversary of our church, and if we hope to have any future anniversaries, and I mean that, that's not a throwaway statement, if we hope to have any future universe, uh, anniversaries. We must be on guard against the subtle, corrosive power of complaining and bickering. Because once that spirit gets a foothold, it fractures churches right down the middle. Study church history, talk to some friends in modern day America. Once that kind of complaining, bickering, mistrusting spirit gets a foothold, it will fracture churches right down the middle. And you know what's so sad about that? It's not just that you as an individual Christian don't have anywhere else to go. I mean, one of the blessings of living in modern day America is that if this church were to die tomorrow, you would have somewhere to worship next Sunday. The really sad thing is that when churches split apart, it becomes false advertising, a counter-advertisement for the very gospel we profess. What was once a vibrant gospel witness and a gospel outpost becomes to the watching world a mound of ruins, which is just one more excuse that we are giving the world to not take Jesus very seriously. Church deaths begin with church splits and church splits begin with Mere whispers. Mere whispers. The, the low murmur of complaint. Turn with me briefly to the, to the book of Jude. I want to show you something interesting along these lines. The book of Jude is easy to miss. It's one chapter, but it's at the very end of the Bible, just before Revelation. What's interesting about Jude as you're making your way there is he was uh, one of Jesus's half-brothers. Uh, we're told in the Gospels that Jesus's own family thought he was crazy. They didn't believe in him. Jude was not a follower of Jesus. And then suddenly in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, we read that, after, uh, that Jude is listed among those who were in the upper room praying, which means that something 
explosive happened in his life, which of course was the resurrection of his brother. Changed his life, and here he's writing um, to a group of believers in one chapter. Look at Jude verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now, why do we parachute into a kind of depressing verse? Well, I'm wanting you to see, I mean, in my Bible, the title, the, the headline over verses three to 16 is the sin and doom of ungodly people. You probably have something similar, all right? You you can know without reading all of verses 3 to 16 that Jude is not happy about about the people that he is indicting. And verse 4 begins what is a blistering tirade. That's what this is, a blistering tirade against godless, immoral, false teachers who have slithered in to defile the church of the living God. Now, What is the climax, the crescendo, the grand finale of Jude's indictment against these ungodly people? Verse 16, these people are grumblers and fault finders. That's not what I would expect to read either. I would expect these people are heretics and murderers and adulterers, but Jude's like, no, they just complain a lot. We need to beware of tolerating grumbling as if it's a tame thing. In Philippians, you can turn back to Philippians, and in Philippians 2.14, I mean, the warning is, is embedded right there in the grammar. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying you cannot be pure and stand out for the wor- from the world unless you stop grumbling or arguing. So the question is not, it's not, do you ever succumb to it? All of us succumb to a murmuring spirit, to a, a mistrustful grumbling spirit. But the question is, are you fluent in that language? Are you fluent in the language of complaining? Would anyone in your life describe you, maybe with you not there, but would they describe you as a professional complainer? When you're processing your day, when you're processing things, are you, is your impulse to talk about what's going wrong? How, how bad things are going, what didn't go well, what's wrong with your job, what you don't like about your roommates, what's not ideal about your church? Or is your impulse to see the kindness of God shining through even your difficult circumstances and trusting his loving care and concern for you every step of the way? Here are three tips I want to give you for fostering this kind of heart and three tips that I think will help us together to foster a culture of cheerful contentment. Cheerful contentment here at RCBC. I'll just give them to you briefly. Number one, trust that God is in charge. Trust that God is in charge. You want to fight against this dangerous, corrosive, black mold in churches? Trust that God 
is in charge. When you grumble about things that don't warrant true lament, that's an important caveat. When you grumble about things that don't warrant true lament, what you're doing is voicing distrust in the God you claim to believe. You're voicing distrust in the Lord's good plans for your life. It's not that you need to just suppress all complaints. It's that you need to learn to trust his character and embrace his work in the very circumstances in which you're most tempted to complain. Sinclair Ferguson puts it well, quote, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. Trust God is in charge. Number two, another tip for fostering a culture of cheerful contentment. Be quick to encourage. Be quick to encourage. You know where this starts? This starts with being less bothered by other people's sins than your own. It's, it's, it's actually not very complicated. Uh, to the degree we fixate on the foibles and the failures of others, we become proud and cynical. To the degree that's what you focus on, you will become proud and or cynical. But to the degree that we attend to our own weaknesses and shortcomings and failings, in light of Christ's over-the-top mercy, we become humble and glad. Listen to this advice from the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. This is worth all of us taking to heart. Quote, rejoice in the good of others. Though it eclipses your light, though it makes your abilities and your excellencies dimmer in the eyes of others, rejoice and bless God for his gifts and graces in others that his name may be glorified more by others than I can glorify it myself. To be able to truly say, Though I can do little, yet blessed be God, there are some who can do more for God than I, and in this I do and will rejoice. This shows great eminence or largeness of spirit. If you're going to stare at others, which frankly you're going to do, you're a human, so if you're going to be staring at others, might as well fix your focus on the evidences of grace that you see in their lives. Number three, Become a cul-de-sac for complaint. Become a cul-de-sac for complaint. When you hear rumblings, not if, when, in this very church even, you hear rumblings of confusion or frustration, resolve to be not this kind of on-ramp that accelerates things onto the highway of mistrust. Rather, be a cul-de-sac where gossip and conflict and discontent go to die. The question is not, are you the initiator? Okay, because some of us just aren't like that. We, we're not necessarily going to be the ones that are always tempted to initiate discontent and initiate grumbling. The question is, what happens when it makes its way to you? When it winds through the neighborhood and ends up at the end of your street? 
I mean, when, when kind of petty criticism enters your ears, does it find a landing pad? Does it find a landing pad on your heart? When you disagree with a choice your leaders have made, your elders have made, are you a delight to disagree with? I mean, that's not just me as an elder instructing you as a member. That's a word for me too. I mean, I want to be the kind of person who is a delight to disagree with. That's a searching question. Are you a delight to disagree with? I mean, just imagine a world, imagine a church filled with people who were a delight to disagree with over matters of practical wisdom because they didn't take themselves too seriously and because they valued the collective joy and unity of the whole over their own individual way. When the complaint reaches the cul-de-sac, be the kind of person, be the kind of church member that directs that car in the other direction, that points them away to the goodness of God and his kindness. And again, hear me, this is not to say that there can't be legitimate complaints brought up. We, we are a congregational church, so we are literally structured with mechanisms by which you have a meaningful voice in what we believe and how we live together as a church. But having said that, we should all think twice before we escalate something in a way that is going to be corrosive and potentially a stumbling block to others in our midst. Oh, friends, it is so easy to complain. It is so easy to complain. It is so easy to complain, and it is so refreshing to be around someone who doesn't. And this is why immediately after Paul writes, do everything without grumbling or arguing, the image that comes to his mind is verse 15 there in the middle. Then, (laughs) that is, if you don't grumble and argue, guess what? You will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. How common How pervasive, how ubiquitous is complaining? Not doing it makes you shine like a star in the universe. (laughs) That's what Paul's saying. And of course, the image of God's people standing out as lights doesn't originate with Paul. This has rich biblical precedent. A thousand years earlier, King David had sung Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had forecasted a coming servant to whom the Lord would say, Isaiah 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And when that servant arrived, he declared, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But of course, that's not all. Jesus also turns to his followers, to those who belong to him, and says, Matthew 5, 14, because you're united to me, you, you, River City, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And by the way, there's that same tension again from verses 12 and 13. Not they're going to see God's deeds and glorify him. Not they're going to see your deeds and glorify you. But they're going to see your deeds and glorify God. That's just a little bit of the rich backdrop to Paul's language here to the Philippians. And, and don't miss the phrase at the beginning of verse 16, as you hold firmly to the word of life. The word of life is shorthand for the word of the gospel. A mature Christian is someone who is holding firmly to the gospel. Now, I don't assume that everyone in this room knows what the gospel is, what the word of life is. So briefly, I'll just say to you, the most important thing, if you're a guest with us, we're so happy you're here. The most important thing you could possibly internalize from this sermon today is that you are not born good with God. Okay, you, you are made in the image of God. You're made to glorify God. But the problem is that you and everyone else has turned away from God and lived for himself or herself. And because of that, God, because he's good, not because he's mean, but because he's good, he must punish sin. He is a righteous judge. But the good news, which is what that word gospel means, is that in the middle of history, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came down. The second person of the eternal Godhead took on human flesh, as we thought about in the passage last week, and he lived a life of obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience that you haven't. And then he went to the cross and hung there in the place of sinners like you and me, absorbing the righteous wrath that was due to us because of our sin, but he took it instead. And three days later, he got up from the dead to prove that everything he had claimed about himself was true. The father vindicated him by raising him from the dead. It's like during the earthly life of Jesus, he makes all these crazy, ludicrous, outlandish claims like, if you just think Jesus was only a good moral teacher, then you're just, with respect, not a very good listener because you haven't read or remembered the kinds of things he claimed about himself. Jesus made crazy claims like he preexisted Abraham and that you need to hate your father and mother compared with your, to your love for him. He made all these claims. He dies on a cross. It looks like he was an utter imposter, a fraud. But then three days later, it's like God takes that long scroll of his claims and by raising him from the dead, the father is signing his name at the bottom of those claims. Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. And on the third day, the father said, it is indeed. And got him up from the dead. And that's really good news if you come to Jesus in humble faith. He didn't die for every single person in such a way that you don't have to do anything. You just, everyone gets saved. No, the reality is that the way that you are rescued, the way you're forgiven, the way that you can be saved is by turning away from your sins and putting your trust in Jesus and following him as king. 
until the day you see him face to face. If that's new to you, um, then there's nothing we'd love more than getting to talk about you, talk with you more about that message. I'll be standing at the door after the service. This room is filled with people who would love to not only help you understand that message, but help you know how it's actually changed their lives. This word of life is the means, this gospel is the means by which the Holy Spirit's power comes into our lives and enables us to resist grumbling and arguing and therefore stand out in a dark world. Work out, stand out. And third, and very briefly, poured out. Poured out. Middle of verse 16. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. In other words, Paul's saying, if you faithfully embody verses 14 and 15, if you cling faithfully to the gospel and stand out as lights in a dark world by your refusal to grumble, then I'll have no reason to be ashamed of you on the last day. In other words, ashamed of my labors, regretful of all my labors and my investment in you when I stand before God. I will be proud to have invested in you. Just look at how long of you Paul takes in his assessment of his life. He, he doesn't interpret the present apart from the future or the future apart from the present, but he does take a long view which makes everything in the meantime make sense. Martin Luther famously said, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. That's a good way to live because so often the days on our calendar are things in the past that we can't change, that we won't stop thinking about, or things in the future that are uncertain that we can't affect. But Martin Luther said, hey, the two days you need to worry about are today and the last day. And that will inform the way you approach everything in the middle. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In the Old Testament, drink offerings were what you poured on top of a sacrifice, and it, it would immediately evaporate. Paul's saying to the Philippians, I'm willing for that to happen to me. This might be a reference to his impending martyrdom. It may not be. That's not entirely clear. Uh, he does use the same phrase, definitely in reference to that in 2 Timothy 4, 6, where he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. It's the last words that he would write before his death. But he's saying, I'm willing to vanish, Philippians. I'm willing to vanish. I'm willing to, to evaporate if only the gospel will keep advancing and bearing fruit among you. See, it may look like Paul is focused on himself here, that he's been focusing on the Philippians, and then here at the very end, it's just a bunch of stuff about him. But he's actually saying something quite humble, if you look at it carefully. The image is not that the Philippians are an addition to his sacrifice. It's that he is an addition to theirs. That's what it means, verse 5, to have the mindset of Christ. Paul is not flaunting his status or clinging to his rights as an apostle. Rather, he's pouring himself out, spending himself for their good. He's not fixated on his own name or his own legacy, but on the name that is above all names. 
So long as the Philippians are thriving and Jesus is getting glory, Paul remains exuberant. Well, in conclusion, in an age which we're living in, if you haven't noticed, an age of cynicism, an age of despair, an age that, that beckons us to just inhale and exhale. Inhale cynicism, exhale contempt. Inhale cynicism, exhale complaint. We have a prime opportunity here at River City to show a more excellent way, to show people that there is a God who is fully in charge. He is perfectly trustworthy. He is faithful and his ways are best. And the secret is not this kind of chipper, shiny, false happiness. The, the secret is a deeper kind of cheerful contentment that is grounded in sober-minded, truth-informed hope. And friends, as we resist this kind of downward pull of skepticism and despair, complaining, bickering, we, the people of Jesus, will be positioned in Richmond and to the ends of the earth to shine as lights in a world that has lost all reason to hope. For in Christ, the best, the best is always yet to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us as a church to be marked by this kind of cheerful contentment. Lord, help us to be easy to please. Help us to be quick to encourage. Help us to, if we're going to talk about people behind their backs, help us to plot for ways that we can encourage them, ways that we can surprise them with kindness so that we might shine like stars in a cynical age. And Lord, may we do it all, not for our own glory, but for the glory of you who has brought us this far and we pray will bring us safely home. And it's in your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.